This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in German Studies. I'm your host, Leslie Waters, and my guest today is Craig Griffiths, author of the new book, The Ambivalence of Gay Liberation, Male Homosexual Politics in 1970s West Germany published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks so much, Leslie. Thanks for having me. So first, a little bit about our author. Craig Griffiths is a senior lecturer in modern history at Manchester Metropolitan University. And he is a co-founder and co-convener of the seminar series in the history of sexuality at the Institute of Historical Research in London. He writes about contemporary queer histories, especially in modern Germany. He's also interested in the history of human rights, the history of emotions and of, psycho, and of psychoanalysis, and post-Holocaust memory. So I'd like to start, Craig, by uh, asking you how you got interested in the topic of West German homosexual politics. I think it, it dates back, way back to my uh, year abroad during my undergraduate studies um, in Berlin, uh, funded by the Erasmus program, and I mentioned this in the acknowledgements to the book, that unfortunately British students no longer have access to the Erasmus exchange, which is a great shame. Um, but in that year abroad, um, I didn't have a great deal of work to do. I had a lot of intellectual freedom, um, and I stumbled across the Schwulers Museum, the Gay Museum in Berlin, um, and its associated archive. Um, and I realized that this is something that I could, at that stage, learn about and study about for one of the assignments I had to do. And then that was really the stepping stone for a future research project. Um, because at that point, I think this is maybe 2008, of course I was aware it was the 40th anniversary of 68. There was lots of talk in the air about the student movement, about new social movements, and I was conscious of Stonewall and American gay liberation. But I knew very little about gay liberation in West Germany. Um, so that's something that I wanted to rectify, I guess. Yeah. Um, even further back, perhaps, um, I remember going as a teenager to a gay bookshop in London. It's called Gays the Word. It's the only kind of gay queer bookshop in the UK until just the other month, actually, a, a gay bookshop opened in Manchester, where I'm based. Uh, it's called Queer Lit. Um, but engaged the word as a, as a teenager I went there and I bought two books one of them was called The Men with the Pink Triangle which is the first published account of a homosexual concentration camp prisoner and one was called The Spartacus International Gay Guide so it's a ridiculous 1000 page um, guide kind of obsolete even then really with the internet but um, you know many years on um, both of those publications really featured prominently in this research project which I, of course, did not know at the time, but it's nice that it worked out that way. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and it's a good segue, actually, to my, my next question, which is kind of about the sources that you use. 
You note that, that your book is a broader exploration of homosexuality in the 1970s, which really pushes beyond social movements, history of social movements. So I was wondering if you could describe for the listeners how you take that analysis beyond social movements, and in particular, a bit about the sources that you use to do that. Okay, yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a great question. Um, I guess what I mean by trying to push beyond a, a social movement study um, is reflecting on those on those who did not call themselves activists, right? So if, if you look only at activist material, whether that's the correspondence between gay groups or the posters, the pamphlets or the minutes of organizing meetings, you know, those sources are really valuable, but they'll give us only a partial view. Um, so more broadly, I looked at the coverage uh, of homosexuality uh, in the mainstream press. Uh, I looked especially at papers like Die Zeit, Der Spiegel, uh, in particular. Um, I looked at opinion polls, including opinion polls regarding homosexual law reform, um, which suggest that a large majority of the West German public opposed the change in the law, which was the partial legalization of sex between men in 1969. I looked at some sociological data from a really useful, important study from 1970. Uh, I looked at debates in Parliament, um, and I looked uh, more broadly at the local and uh, regional press, uh, so not just the the gay press. I want to say the gay press. I guess when I began this project, I looked especially at the info sheets and the zines of various gay groups, and they're very important. Um, but the commercial gay press was even more important. So the two major magazines which I looked at which were both new on the scene after the change in the law in late 1969, Du and Ich and him. Um, so I looked, tried to embed my analysis with those types of sources, which of course, to some extent, were read by activists and they featured some stories on the gay movement, but they were really much broader. You know, they had gossip columns and letters, um, coverage of novels and film um, and music. Um, uh, dating ads. Um, there's a health. There was a health column as well, and actually the letters page within those magazines. That was one of the the most useful um, types of source. Great, thanks. So yeah, it sounds like the, a lot of the sources you used had a had a really uh, broad dissemination and even sort of an international dissemination to a certain extent, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, but what about that archive that you mentioned earlier, the, the gay archive in, in Berlin? What kinds of sources can you find there or did you find there? It's, it's an amazing resource. So I can really recommend um, actually to any researcher because it has a decent English language collection as well. Uh, and it's growing all the time. When I started, it was in um, kind of a dusty back courtyard in Kreuzberg. It's kind of moved up in the world since with some funding from the uh, from the local government. Um, now it's near Nordendorfplatz, which is one of the main kind of centers of the, of the gay scene in contemporary Berlin. Um, so, you know, as it's based in Berlin, so it has a lot of focus on, on, on Berlin and some of the groups that existed in Berlin in the 70s, and not just the 70s, the archive holds a great amount of material really from the late 1800s on. 
Um, you'll find all of the magazines and the newsletters from various gay groups there, such as the HAW, the Homosexual Action West Berlin. But you'll find also a complete run of all the commercial gay press. So I mentioned him, Du und Ich. There's some other magazines like Don. There's a lot of films, um, kind of recordings of, of films and television programs as well. Um, and there's a lot of material on gay groups beyond Berlin. And that was really important for me because I didn't want my study to be just a history of Berlin or, or West Berlin. I really wanted to go beyond that. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I visited other archives too, but even the archive in Berlin does hold a lot of information on um, gay culture, gay groups beyond that city. Fantastic. Uh, so I'd like to talk a bit now about ambivalence as a theme of your work. Obviously, it's in, in the title, uh, <laughs> but uh, you mention that you have these kind of three dichotomies in which you discuss ambivalence in the work, mm -hmm. uh, pride, shame, normal, different, and hope, fear. So can you explain a bit about your use of ambivalence as, a, as an organizing principle and an analytical tool? Absolutely. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I would like to know exactly when I hit upon this as a kind of organizing theme, and I'm not entirely sure. It was certainly not at the start of the project, that's, that's for sure. I think one of the things I came up against in some of the, the scholarship, most of which has been written or was written by activists turned historians, so gay liberationists who already in the 70s, mid to late 70s, began to reflect um, on the social movements of which they were a part. Um, and that scholarship has been crucial, really important. But it has given rise to this idea, this kind of dichotomy of radicals versus integrationists. So a previous generation, or not just a previous generation, but also some people alongside um, activists who perceived of themselves as radical, but so-called integrationists, right? Those who sought only to change the law, to integrate themselves into existing society, versus those who really wanted to uh, transform the institutions of the Federal Republic uh, in solidarity with other oppressed groups, the solidarity with um, those affected by sexism, racism, um, etc. So what I became more and more kind of frustrated with is the simplicity of that idea that there's got the radicals on the one hand and the integrationists on the other. So, and then I came across this idea of ambivalence, um, which at its most basic speaks to the complexity of, of human beings <laughs> um, and the conflicts in which we end up, the simultaneous attachment to conflicting ideas, feelings, attitudes, and most famously that between love and hate. Um, but here I was really inspired by the work of Deborah Gould, who has looked at anti-AIDS activism in the United States. Her book is called uh, Moving Politics. Um, and she's looked at ambivalence in the context of the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, but I, I thought that looking at ambivalence, look at, looking at the pushes and pulls conflicting tendencies, well, that's useful, not just in an epidemic, that's also useful to think about the um, uh, the drama and the intensity of activism in, in the 1970s. Um, 
And then, you know, I decided, as, as you say, to kind of organize it with these three dichotomies or these three axes of ambivalence. Um, and for me, possibly the most important is pride shame, right? Because I really, I don't feel that we can talk about shame disappearing from the, from the scene mm-hmm. to be neatly replaced um, by gay pride. Um, I think that's also a political intervention I'm making, and I think that's still important in the present. Um, gay shame remains. Um, but also that I felt if we look at normal, different, you know, I, I couldn't detect in the sources one group of people who only perceived of themselves as um, conforming and as ordinary and just as normal as every other member of society. And on the other hand, those who proudly kind of proclaimed their difference. Um, the, the lines seemed much more blurred than that. For example, if we look at some gay leftists on the whole, some of those activists certainly didn't advocate fitting into mainstream society, but they were very interested in fitting into the heterosexual left. So you right. still see that, that, you know, that pull of, that pull of conformism. Um, and I looked at hope, fear as well, because there is that wonderful utopianism and kind of playful spirit of gay liberation. That's very much there. I didn't want to lose sight of that. But there's also a great deal of angst, a great deal of fear um, expressed and felt by same-sex desiring men uh, in the 1970s. In the case of the gay left, that especially took the form of, of this perception that there could be a backward slide into authoritarianism, even into fascism, and the symbol of the pink triangle is is important there. I think it's a, a really clever way of, of doing this work in particular, because uh, also, as you mentioned in your introduction, it lets you take somewhat of a psychoanalytical approach, but also sort of grounded in this idea that it's the social conditions that one finds themselves in that is going to influence how these ambivalences play out. Could you elaborate on that a little? Sure. Um, So here I take somewhat of a a middle ground. Um, So I have had my own kind of intellectual engagement with psychoanalysis, and I do think that... so cutting a long story short and of course a great uh, deal of debate within psychoanalysis about ambivalence but it's a psychic conflict to which we are all subject you know every human being um which had it has its roots in childhood development you know so i accept that but i think it's also important um the extent to which our social situation gives rise to a more pronounced or less pronounced exposure to that um to that ambivalence. So and I'm influenced here, again, by the work of, of, of Deborah Gould. So I think especially marginalized groups are especially prone to the pushes and pulls of ambivalence, the desire to be accepted, but also the, um, the push towards transformation um, and to do something different. Um, yeah, so I'm looking at, um, you can call it a psychosocial, or, or mm-hmm. I use ambivalence, I guess, as a, as a window in, into, into how, the, how the psychic and the social come together. So I, I do throughout the book sometimes. It's not a, a thorough engagement with psychoanalytic literature, um, 
I'm not a historian of psychoanalysis, um, but I certainly have an interest in it. Um, so I think there's way, different ways for readers to engage with that if they're more interested, perhaps, in, in, uh, on the psychic level or more interested um, in learning more about the social situation, for example, of queer people in the, in the 70s. All right, let's um, sort of switch gears for a moment and, and talk about some of your historiographical interventions. So uh, first, I think your book is a fantastic example of challenging how one can challenge very well-established teleologies and periodizations. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, what you see as your intervention in those areas. Um, thank you. That's, that's kind of you to say. That's, for me, something I really wanted to hopefully achieve um, with the book. Um, and I guess in two main ways, right, in terms of tackling teleological ideas um, or ideas of liberalization. So I guess firstly, in terms of more broadly in queer history, I think sometimes we have this idea that we're we're on a um, teleological march towards ever greater progress, ever greater equality. In the past, there was only shame and silence and conformism, um, and especially after 1969, so in West Germany with the legal change, or in the United States, in New York, the Stonewall riots, all of a sudden, you know, the chains of oppression thrown off, the beginning of a golden future, um, and that improving also after the horrors of HIV AIDS to the supposed tolerance and equality of the present. Um, yeah, that to me doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't feel right. Um, mm -hmm. We all know that progress is not unidirectional. Hard right, hard won rights can be taken away. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of the kind of backlash against trans acceptance. That's um, uh, gaining, gaining speed on both sides of the Atlantic right now. So there's that, um, I'm, I'm troubled by neat ideas of liberalization in terms of queer history more generally, but also with reference to Germany, it's so important uh, because West Germany, the Federal Republic, the history of that country has often been told as a success story of democratization and liberalization. And it's understandable, right? Given uh, how a multi-party democracy, you know, emerges from, from the aftermath of fascism. Um, but that, um, that success story um, uncovers troubling continuities. Uh, and occasionally, the changing of the law in 1969 has been seen as further evidence of how the Federal Republic successfully um, emerged from its fascist past. Because, you know, the version of the law that existed until 1969, paragraph 175, the sodomy law, well, that was introduced by the Nazis in 1935. Not a word of that law was changed until 1969. was not subject to denazification. But even after it was changed, so first in 1969, then again in 1973, we do not see an unbridled acceptance of you know, sexual diversity, far from it. So sure. I, cite, you know, I cite, for example, one gay teacher, Rainer Kupp. So he's sacked uh, from his job. Uh, he appeals, uh, but he's told by the court, which upholds his dismissal, that he simply has no right to challenge Germany's unwritten laws, unwritten laws of honour, 
convention and decency. And it's the stubbornness of those unwritten laws, not just the, the, the actual law, which was changed, that can tell us something about um, sexual conservatism and the tenacity of anti-homosexual uh, policies and, and prejudice. So I really wanted to tackle this idea that um, already by the early 70s, we see a complete um, cultural and social liberalization of West German society. It's just not the case if we focus on homosexuality. On the flip side of that, uh, my next question was precisely about this law and um, what sorts of shifts you could identify with the decriminalization of male homosexual relations in Germany. So, although I just mentioned, you know, the unwritten <laughs> laws are important too. Sure. Of course, the you know the statute, the paragraph one seven five, it, it was an important reform, right? I mean, yes, because as I mentioned, not one word altered uh, of the Nazis' version of that law until nineteen sixty nine, and it's it's not just the wording of the law. It's Robert Mueller gives us this astonishing statistic: more men prosecuted between fifty three and sixty five than had been prosecuted in the Third Reich. This was a really um, hostile climate in, in the 1950s, especially in um, West Germany. Um, so I don't see the legal reform in 1969 as some kind of caesura or turning point, but it was important. And I think one of the main ways in which it was important is by giving queer people and here men in particular, right, because the law was about male uh, homosexuality, giving same-sex desiring men a, um, a fragile access to the public sphere. So there's a new breed of glossy gay magazine. Uh, so I mentioned earlier him um, and du und ich, uh, you and I, and they emerge on the newspaper stands immediately. So one of them actually has the subtitle, The Post-September Magazine, because the legal reform came in in September 1969. And of course, there's a, there's a press um, for queer people dating back decades. In fact, the world's first homosexual paper was in Germany um, after the revolution, after the end of the First World War. Um, but the, the magazines that existed in the 1950s, um, associated with the so-called homophile movement. They were not sold on newspaper stands. They had to be sold uh, to private subscribers through the post. Uh, they were not glossy magazines with lots of uh, nudity, for example. Um, they were quite reserved. There's lots of stories. There's references to antiquity, for example. Um, so there was this really important new breed of print culture um, represented by these new magazines. Um, that was crucial. That really was uh, important, um, not least for me as a historian because of the, the source that it gives us. Right. Uh, speaking of this idea of homophilia in Germany, can you explain for the listeners what that was and, and how uh, gay activists started to push back against that in the 1970s? Sure. Um, so there was a... Just as in much of the Western world, there was a homophile movement in the post-war period, so late 40s, 50s, and 60s. And activists in that movement called themselves homophiles to avoid 
drawing attention to the sexual in homosexual. And this was part of a project of detoxifying same-sex love. You know, what the idea being, why draw attention to the sex act? After all, this is the thing that gives us such a bad name. This is the thing that makes straight society so uncomfortable. And also, why should homosexuals be defined by what they do in the bedroom? So those are some of the, the ideas behind that language. And the homophile movement in the 50s in the United States, so the Mattachine Society was the, the biggest group, um, the groups in West Germany were smaller, um, but the homophile movement has been uh, reassessed in recent years, it's fair to say, by, by historians. So Julian Jackson has worked on, Friend, on France, for example, Jennifer Evans or Benno Gamel, Clayton Wisnant on Germany. So the homophiles were really not as conservative or shame-filled as some activists in the 70s thought. So that's very important. Um but that was the prevailing view in the 1970s. What little predominantly younger activists um, in the gay movement, what little they knew of the homophiles struck them you know, as quaint, as old fashioned, potentially even as something much worse in terms of you know, suspect of have, for having arranged themselves with the post-war order. Um, and now, gave rise to a quite intense generational conflict in, in, in homosexual politics, um, which explains, I think, why there was um, a relative lack of cooperation, um, but also it has to be said a, a lack of, a relative lack of interest of a predominantly younger generation in what had come before. And they became more interested in what had come before, but actually their interest was in the Third Reich, right? They rediscover the Pink Triangle, and they talk about fascist persecution. Of course, they talk about what happened in the 20s, right? But they're less interested in the homophile movement of the 50s. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Great. Thank you very much. Um, let's sort of shift now to discussing some of the ways in which homosexuality would have been presented to like a, a broader audience in the 1970s. So you talk quite a bit about film and television. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. Um, so probably the most um, controversial example was a film by Rosa von Braunheim. It was called Not the Homosexual is Perverse, but the Society in Which He Lives. So originally shown at the Berlin Film Festival, I think in 1970, 1971, but then much more controversially broadcast on regional TV in 72 and then on national TV in 1973, uh, but not in Bavaria. Right? So the Bavarian broadcaster simply turns off the national signal because it you know, did not agree with this kind of unprecedented, unprecedented portrayal of, of homosexuality. Um, you know, the film can be analysed in different ways. Like it is consciously provocative. It takes aim 
uh, at various forms of gay life, for example, cruising, for example, the leather scene, for example, um, conspicuous consumption. Um, and it's call. Cool. It was addressed, yes, at wider society, but also at queer people themselves, calling on them to come together, to come out to challenge homophobia. And the group and the film was really important in terms of catalyzing some activism. So a lot of gay groups had their first event or their first meeting as kind of collective screenings of this film. Um, but yeah, it was broadcast on national TV. So it's also very important in terms of um, the broader portrayal of homosexuality. So what I did was to look at some of the audience letters that were sent in to the broadcaster, WDR, um, in Cologne. That, so these letters that were written after the broadcasts, whether in 1972 or 1973, um, not all were negative. That's important to say. And they must... And also the WDR, the broadcaster, broke these letters down. And what they pointed out was that in some instances, homosexuals who wrote in were more outraged than um, letter writers they identified as straight um, because of the rather kind of no-holds-barred portrayal um, of homosexuality. But in terms of of, of some of the, the heterosexuals who wrote in, um, there were some very troubling... Um, uh, continuities with 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 opinions and with reactions from the Third Reich, um, including references to how you know gay people should be locked up in camps, um, and references to you know how this filth and smart should be should not be allowed to be paraded on TV screens. How this was a danger to youth. Um, so the audience reaction here does give us a window into the, the persistence of some of these uh, attitudes. Um, of course, it's not the case that everyone reacted in the same way, not at least the broadcaster, you know, who actually made sure that that film made it to TV screens in the first place. Sure. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering if you could give us kind of a lay of the land of the variety of social movements that you uh, discuss in the book. So what's kind of the yeah, general landscape of gay social movements in Germany in this decade? In terms of the activist groups or Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I I look at I don't um, I look at three main tendencies, let's say, right? So I talk about the commercial gay press, I talk about more moderate, liberal-minded homosexual rights organizations. So I mentioned one in particular, the IHWO, International Homophile World Organization, quite a mouthful. It was not international, it was not a world organization, (laughs) but nevertheless, it was quite influential. Um, And I talk about some other associations, organizations which followed in their footsteps. Uh, but I also look at the gay left, or what I call the gay left. Um, so action groups, and that was the term that was used, Aktionsgruppen, um, dotted around the country, which on the whole, and of course there's a broad diversity of political thought, but on the whole um, linked the status of homosexuals in West German society with the capitalist system, with the imperialist system, and sought to change that existing order. Um, So groups like Homosexual Action West Berlin, Homosexual Action Munich, Homosexual Action Hamburg, etc, etc. 
those groups were part of a broader movement. You know, I call it the alternative left. Uh, other scholars talk about a new left or an alternative milieu. Um, but following in the footsteps, really, of the student movement, um, part of this environment to the left of the governing social democrats who were in power the duration of the, of the 1970s. So the alternative left, you know, define themselves really against the, the set supposed kind of selling out of the trade unions and the social democrats. Um, so the student movement was important here, um, but the environmental movement, the peace movement, second wave feminism, um, also some... Trotskyists and Marxist groups, so-called Kargruppen in German, communist groups. Um, some of them alternative in the sense of being influenced by counterculture, you know, by hippies. Others actually very doctrinaire, um, and not all of them. Not all of them interested in talking about sexual expression. Um, but nevertheless, this this kind of alternative left, this post nineteen sixty eight left. You know that was the home, or it was it did, it was a space which could give rise to the gay left. Um, and I think to understand the subjectivities of gay activists, or at least gay leftists, then we need to think about their affiliation to these other groups and these other struggles also. And what are some of the tensions uh, between the sort of gay alternative left and then the broader alternative left groups in Germany? So, for example, there's one, I want to say it's the communist, there's so many acronyms and abbreviations which get (laughs) very, very confusing. So the Communist Party of Germany, forward slash AO, so Aufbau Organation, I think. Um, But in any case, one of these group and one of these relatively small communist groups was some activists in the homosexual action Bremen wrote to this communist group um, because they were members, right? They were, and this idea, the idea was Doppelmitgliedschaft, kind of double-track membership, right? Yes, you should be a member of a gay group, but you must also engage in the socialist movement. So they wrote to this communist group, and they had the reply back saying, well, you know, homosexuality probably wouldn't occur in a post-revolutionary society, and hence, you know, what you're doing is counter-revolutionary, it's reformist, it's dreadfully liberal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I don't think that stance was typical, um, but it is also the case that um, not every leftist or alternative left leftist, you know, was interested in questions of gender and sexuality. And the women's movement came up against this already before the gay movement did. So some activists on, on the far left or on the radical left, on the alternative left, tended to... Um, talk about sexism as a secondary contradiction um, as opposed you know to the primary contradiction um, of you know, economic exploitation you know women's rights could wait until after the revolution um, and that set the scene actually for the way some leftists also engaged with gay liberation when it emerged later um, and that is why I think the pink triangle was such an effective gay symbol right because you know, what, one of the things I argue in the book is that, you know, we might think that the spirit of counterculture or anti-authoritarianism would be enough to anchor gay liberation in the, you know, in the radical left, in the alternative left. But, you know, I don't think it was. I think what was more important um, was this reference to past victimhood. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and not all groups do this, but um, the Homosexual Action West Berlin, for example, were very clear. They embraced the pink triangle because it could be compared to the red triangle. That was, you know, the sign worn in the concentration camps by socialist and communist prisoners. So they talked about simultaneous oppression of heterosexual left-wingers and gay left-wingers, persecution, yes, in the Third Reich, but persecution that was continuing in the Federal Republic. And they are quite successful in that that campaign. Uh, But I think it's revealing that that was perceived as necessary, right? This reference to victimhood. They could not rely just on the spirit of, you know, togetherness or to get, or the spirit of anti-authoritarianism. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of reveals maybe a, a certain orthodoxy among these new leftists, sure. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but sort of sticking with the topic of the pink triangle, can you talk about this sort of process of rediscovery of, of Nazi persecution of gays and, and what its importance was more broadly mm-hmm. in the 1970s? Yeah. So that, that really kind of began in 1972 with... The book I mentioned earlier, which I happened to buy coincidentally as a teenager, um, a book by Heinz Heger, uh, it's a pseudonym, uh, The Men with the Pink Triangle. So it's not the first time a homosexual ever discussed their camp experience, but it was the first time that had been published or beyond the pages of a of a very small, you know, homophile magazine. This was a book which was um, read widely. It was later translated into English, translated into French. And this put a younger generation into contact with the experiences of, you know, some gay men who ended up in the Nazi concentration camps. That was really important because that um, that memory, to a certain extent, had been lost in the previous two decades. Right? This is not something that the homophile movement of the 50s and the 60s really dwells on. The Pink Triangle is not mentioned. Um, And that's partly because of the lack of historical interest, right? That's partly because uh, gay victims are not able to come forward because they were still basically criminalized. Um, And this is similar in the West and the East. And some of the kind of um, the organizations uh, that represented, you know, victims of the Third Reich were not interested in representing queer victims. Um, So this book in 1972 has a really radical um, impact, Uh, becomes kind of set reading (laughs) for for gay movement activists. But crucially, it is also picked up in the broader public sphere. Um, Der Spiegel mentioned this, for example. They have a front cover story. Uh, Der Spiegel is um, the most popular weekly news magazine. Um, they pick up on this in their front cover story in 1973. They say, well, you know, gays were victims in the Third Reich, but this has never been dealt with, um, and they're still being discriminated against today. Um, and that is an argument which then makes its way into the parliamentary arena later in the decade. Um, and gay activists demanded also compensation for victims of homophobic persecution in 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 the Third Reich, because victims had not had that up until that point. Um, so it's a really, this reference to past persecution, you know, with or without the pink, the symbol of the pink triangle, that was a really effective mechanism to win some support, mm-hmm. or at least to put opponents on the back foot. You know, even the Christian Democrats um, promised to raise this in Parliament um, 
for example. Um, so it's a really effective tool in the kind of the gay liberation toolbox. Great. So I want to sort of return actually to the first sentence of your book. It's um, it's a quote from the Spartacus International Gay Guide <laughs> that you mentioned earlier. Right. Okay. So in the opinion <laughs> of the editor, Germany is now the best place in Europe for a gay person to live. The Germans are quick to exploit and advance their homosexual freedom, and especially in the bigger cities, almost anything goes. Old inhibitions are dying quickly, and gay life is swinging. So you use this, right, as, as one of your primary examples of ambivalence, right, that, that somebody could have this opinion, mm -hmm. and yet there can be all of these sorts of uh, reactionary uh, elements at play as well. But can you tell us a little bit about the sort of hopeful side of gay life in Germany in the 1970s? Sure. Yeah. And that's, and that's important to, to take seriously as well. I think, um, um, so the editor of that, of that guide, Spartacus International Gay Guide, John Stanford, um, was British. So the guide was initially published from Brighton in England and then moved to Amsterdam. And I think partly what we learn is um, he discovered in Germany something broader um, more exciting um, than, than back home in the UK. And there's a long tradition of that. Christopher Isherwood, for example, writing about, you know, what he discovered in 1920s uh, Berlin. Um, but, you know, there was a diversity to, to the gay scene in 1970s West Germany and, and beyond divided Berlin, right? It is the case that we see a more diverse gay scene, more bars, more cafes, more communication centres catering to a queer audience. And the policing, um, so policing as a whole um, was more liberal than in the 50s and the 60s, which makes sense after the change of the law in 1969. It's certain some troubling policing continuity certainly existed so there was an example in in hamburg uh in uh, public toilets of when um mirrors were placed in public toilets and police officers stood behind the mirror to observe what was going on inside and this was used to entrap people um and that continued through the decade actually the police admitted that that was still happening in 1981 um but we do see a less intensive policing of the gay scene which allows it to, to flourish to a certain extent um and then gay liberation which you know I, ref, I, ref, I mean in a kind of a broad capacious sense it's not just the gay movement but the space the spaces of queer life also expanded in the 70s right because we have not just let's say the gay bar which of course existed before we have um cafes we have uh festivals um there's important de demonstrations there's a festival in 1979 called uh, homolulu um which um, which I talk about in the book and which I think if we look at some of the source material from there, we really see that this is, you know, yes, there's talk about oppression and there's talk about the pink triangle, but this is also a joyous, colourful um, experience. Um, yeah, so we certainly see that in the, in, in the 70s also. And it's reflected in print culture as well. Huge amount of texts that proliferate. You know, we've mentioned films as well, but a lot of it is... is textual um uh, and that gives rise to yeah a greater diversification both in terms of um uh, a sexual culture in terms of you know different uh, aiming at different parts of, of the community 
and some some of it is is, is more is more political. Um, yeah, so that diversification is important, um, and it's also part of the story. That's why I try to avoid falling into the kind of the idiom of of the gay left that you know liberalisation was per se impossible, um, that, and anything that might seem to be a good manifestation was just a so-called shine reform, like a pseudo-reform, uh-huh. or a, a reform in the interest of, of the ruling power or the ruling powers. Um, so, you know, I think there was also reform, you know, that there, there were some improvements. I think to disregard that altogether, you know, would be would be problematic. Great, thank you. Uh, so I've really enjoyed this discussion, uh, but I don't want to take up so much of your time today. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit as our sort of last question here about what you're working on next, as well as uh, whether you could give us some uh, book recommendations. Sure, yeah, definitely. Um, so I have a few pieces coming out uh, soon or soonish, I hope. Actually, one piece not until May next year because it needs to be translated. So mm-hmm. that's a piece on uh, cultures of conservatism in homosexual politics. So interesting, um, taking a slightly different direction, looking at some of the more conservative voices in, in queer politics. Um, that one is a comparative piece with the United States as well. So um, that's that was really exciting for me to try to engage in some comparative history. So that'll be out next year, and there'll be an English language version with the um, German Yearbook of Contemporary History that's um, published by University of Nebraska Press. Um, my next kind of major research project is on uh, human rights, or queer history of human rights. Because um, one of the things I came across in this book was the gradual emergence of a discourse of, of human rights towards, especially towards the end of the dec- of the decade in, in, in the 1970s. Um, and I'm interested in looking in that in a in a in a broader context, because there's a, a Swiss writer, Heinrich Hösli, already in the 1830s, you know, he talks about Menschenrechte, human rights, as a kind of a discrete language to talk about same-sex sexuality. Um, so I'd like to trace that evolution and that transformation um, um, and also to explore what happens after the 1970s in an era of neoliberalism as well, you know, whether the gay movement has sold out, in scare quotes, by embracing kind of human rights language. Um, but I'm really early days with that project. In terms of further reading, it's such an exciting time to be a queer historian of Germany. Um, there's lots of books in the pipeline, so if, if any listeners are interested in East Germany, because I talk only about the West, I can really recommend a book by Samuel Hunnaker. It's called States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. That's coming out, I think, literally next month. Um, Jennifer Evans, who's published widely in queer German history, she has a book coming out on queer life after fascism, kinship and the queer art of history book by Jake Newsom on the Pink Triangle, also looking at the United States. That's called Pink Triangle Legacies, coming out in the shadow of the Holocaust. There's work by Sebastian Tremblay, by Christopher Ewing. Um, for German language listeners, I really recommend Benno Gamel, uh, his book Anders Fuhlen, so Feeling Differently, although also Benno has published in English for those um, who don't read German. I mentioned Deborah Gould earlier on, Moving Politics, 
So if anyone's interested in learning more about ambivalence, I certainly recommend Deborah Gould's work on American gay liberation. I really enjoyed Emily Hobson's book. Um, it's called Lavender and Bread. It's about um, activism in the in the San, San Francisco area. Um, perhaps if anyone's interested in earlier periods of queer activism, uh, Laurie Marhofer's work is fantastic. So there's one of her earlier book is called Sex and the Weimar Republic. Her new book is called Racism and the Making of Gay Rights. There's so much, so much being published right now in terms of German queer history. Fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, it is very, very exciting to hear about all of these up and coming authors. Um, so thank you so much, Craig, for speaking with us today. Your book is The Ambivalence of Gay Liberation, Male Homosexual Politics in 1970s West Germany, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. So this has been New Books in German Studies, and I'm Leslie Waters. Until next time. Thank you.